Good morning, everybody. This morning I'll be reading from the sixth chapter of Luke, verses 27 through 36. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. If someone, if someone slaps you on one cheek, well, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you, don't, if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And as always, this is God's Word. Please be seated. Inside of the announcement sheet, you'll find uh, an outline, not only of the worship assembly this morning, but of uh, the message in our Bible study this morning out of Luke chapter 6, uh, some places where you can make some notes, things that you may want to remember or uh, follow up on later at the bottom of that sermon outline, you also find the questions for the small groups. Uh, usually there's one or two, sometimes three. This morning there are four. So we, uh, we got a lot of stuff to cover this morning. Before we pray, I uh, just, just want to say um, uh, hello, send, send greetings to everyone who's streaming with us right now. Uh, we know that, uh, that you would be here, but for um, uh, reasons sometimes beyond your control, you're not. Uh, sometimes it's, it's illness, sometimes it's uh, just... Uh, the frailties of the body. Uh, sometimes it's traveling. Uh, sometimes it's work, and you're able to pick us up on your phone. We want you to know that that uh, uh, it's it's not the same without you, and we love you, and uh, we're grateful for our fellowship and this body that is made up uh, of people from not only all over Texas and all over San Antonio, but really from all over the world, and and we're grateful that you're with us this morning. Uh, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into this text. Father, when we, we think about all of the blessings that have come our way because of the gospel, the one that sort of stands out there is the one that begins the whole process of reconciliation, and that's your love. And the call to love people as you have loved us is, is, is not only profoundly difficult, but significantly important. And, and we want to listen carefully, Father, to, to the words of this text that Roger has read for us and to think very deeply, not only about their meaning, but the application in our life because we run into people all over this town and all over this city, Father, that, that need to know about the love that can change them. And it begins, Father, with, with you loving us and us understanding that 
more and more each day and implementing that as disciples, implementing that love into our life in such a way that, that people who encounter it encounter a love that is, that is so that, that is so startling and so unexpected that the eyes are opened a little bit wider for the possibility of the greatness of your love coming and streaming into their hearts. And so to this end, Father, as disciples of your Son, we ask you to give us the eyes that see and the ears to hear in such a way that we too are transformed. And we pray this in the name of the Messiah, Jesus. Amen. If uh, you spend very much time with us here at Mac, one of the, the passages that you hear me talk about a lot because sort of the beginning point of understanding the Bible is uh, uh, the beginning chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2 is not just a, a description of our origin. It's more than that. Genesis 1 and 2, in the creation of the heavens and the earth and all that God poured into it in creating this place in which human being, beings could flourish and thrive was also about creating a culture. A, a culture in the world that God had created. It was a place where human beings did not, if you can believe this, did not feel the compulsion or the impulse to hide from God. The culture of the original earth as God created it and called it Tov, called it good, was a place where nothing grew old, where nothing died, but where everything teemed with beauty and, and, and bloomed and burst forth with, with goodness. Humans, like you and me, were living in a place where we were knee-deep in beauty. The earth just brimmed with a knowledge of God. No one had any doubts about God at that time. No one, no one asked, where is God? Because it was all evident in that original culture of the earth. And that was the culture of the earth. But then in Genesis chapter 3, as you know, we have the fall of man. And the distrust of God and his purposes in our lives. And the, the, uh, the transgression of a direct command not to eat of a certain fruit in the garden was the price of admission for the counterculture that entered the planet. Now, how do you illustrate that? Well, th there's a huge difference between what you find in a new car lot with all of those beautiful cars and how shiny they are and, and all of the latest technologies and, and, and leather seating and the smell and the transmissions that, that go uh, smoothly from one gear to the next and all of that technology that makes us safe on the roads and helps us to get from one place to the other with what you find in a, a car graveyard. And in that car graveyard, you find a lot of beauty. I mean, you, you can look at a lot of cars in a graveyard, and you can begin to sense, and, and maybe even intuit in your imagination, what those cars looked like in their heyday when they were brand new, and they rolled off of the assembly line, and they were painted, and they were cared for, it, and it, before the rust and, and the wrecks begin to take away from their former beauty. Since the moment that Eve ate the forbidden fruit, the world that you and I live in and the world that God created has been a mess. The result of that sin was a broken relationship with God. And that broken relationship with God ended in breaking relationships with other human beings. You don't have to go very far in the Bible. You just go from chapter 3, which is the fall of man, to chapter 4, and all of a sudden you have Cain killing Abel. 
He killed his brother. We go from eating a piece of forbidden fruit to killing another human being. And the reality of the world becomes not just a place of death, chapter 3, because sin has entered into the world, but it becomes a reality of killing. But then the Messiah comes, preaching the kingdom of God and preaching forgiveness, that our sins can be forgiven in such a way that God is able to bring us in all of his holiness and all of his sinlessness and without blemish, which is his character, his holiness, he is able through his forgiveness to bring us into his presence. And he's able to grant to us repentance. Now that seems like a, a funny kind of way of saying it, but the Bible says you know, to grant repentance, which means that we have been granted the opportunity to change our life, to have a second chance at a second chance. Which means that human relationships are restored to God. The restoration to God the Father involves not just that reconciliation, but renovation of the human heart. The gospel was to create a different kind of a life. And Christians, people who call themselves people of faith, members of, of, of Christ's church, disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, these kinds of people show what the world is supposed to look like if the kingdom of God was fully and completely here. And one of the big areas that manifests and demonstrates that is how God is able to, through the gospel, not only restore our relationship to Him, but works on restoring human relationships to each other. Now in the counterculture that is the fallen world, it's, the counterculture is not what was original. In the counterculture of the fallen, fallen world, you can basically relate to other people in four different ways. I mean, the, the, not counting, you, you, know, you can love them and take care of them, but there are four other ways that you can relate to another human being. One is to hate, and that's where you may not physically and literally take their life, but in your mind and in your heart, you're killing them every day. Just about everybody I know has a list or a, a, a group of faces that they would like to punch. So you can hate somebody or you can dismiss them through indifference. I mean, think about the last time you drove past a homeless man or a homeless woman and really didn't take notice of them. You may have seen them. You may have seen the cardboard uh, box top with some kind of a message written on it in crayon or, or in charcoal. And you saw them, but you didn't really see them. Because there was something about them and who you are or perceive yourself to be that separated you from them and because of who they are it's just sort of this indifference you drive right by them you not you don't even notice them or it might be that you're in a relationship but the relationship only goes so far what you do is you basically you go into a relationship but you close people off you never let them in you relate to them only at a certain kind of a level that allows them to get so close but no closer you love to a point but no further. Or it might be that you objectify them, which means that you might love somebody for what you can get out of them and what you can steal out of their life. Now, everyone who has constant contact with people in the counterculture of the fallen world struggles with this kind of stuff. I mean, what's the old saying? Some people are like clouds. When they disappear, the world and the sky gets more beautiful. Is there any evidence in our fallen countercultural world, with all the life hacks 
and all the counseling that we're getting any better at relating to people? I don't think so. We look for people who make us feel the way that we want to feel about ourselves. And that's what we're comfortable with. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a contemporary illustration, knowing that we're coming towards the end of the year and, uh, and the Christmas holidays. But imagine going to the office Christmas party at your boss's house. You walk into the library, and there's the person who spreads some lies about you, talking to the person in HR who just really annoys you. You quietly back out, you head off to the living room, and there's the guy who doesn't give you the time of day until he needs something from you, and then he acts like he's your best friend and calls you buddy. It's such a fake. And he's talking to the person who's always cooking the foulest-smelling leftovers in the break room, and the break room just reeks. And in the corner, you notice, what's his name from accounting? You turn 90 degrees, and to your relief, you see your friend from the cubicle next to you hiding in the kitchen, and you become comfortable talking about how all of these other annoying people are at the party. Sounds like some parties we've been to, right? It's here, I think, in this passage that Roger read for us, that the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth introduced the culture of the kingdom of God into the world. A couple of, of, of observations about this text. Number one, all of the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew chapter 5, all of the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke chapter 6, all of the Sermon on the Mount is for all disciples. It's for everyone who has committed their life to the Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, his disciples come to him, he sits down, he begins to teach them. In Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, a large crowd of his disciples, as well as a great number of people, but a large crowd of his disciples were there, and they come to, they've come to hear him, and he teaches them as well as heal them. Something I said earlier in the sermon, I want to repeat here. What God is doing through Christ and all of this teaching is populating the world through the gospel with people who show what the world would look like if the kingdom of God was fully here. So when we introduced our mission statement uh, back at the beginning of the year, nearly 12 months ago, uh, we said, you know, it's based on, on Matthew chapter 22. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And not only Matthew chapter 22, but Matthew chapter 28, the very last words we find in the, the Gospel of Matthew, that um, all authority has been given to me. Jesus is speaking. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything, everything that I have taught you. All of the teachings of Jesus are not, you know, we don't choose and, and pick what it is that we, we, we accept and apply our energies to and develop in us as if it was some kind of a smorgasbord. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to love God and to love people and to change the world by making disciples. And a lot of the time that that happens in the world, the counterculture of the fallen world, is it begins with a thing called love. In the way that we relate to people, and bless people, and embrace people, even the ones that annoy us. We embrace 
those people as well. And they too are being invited into the kingdom. The ones that we are indifferent to, the ones that are hostile to us, they too are invited into the kingdom of God to understand what the gospel is all about. And for God's power through the gospel, His Spirit, through fellowship with fellow disciples of Jesus, to learn what it means to live a life that brings glory to God in this world. And so the second observation is this. When it comes to love, love is for every kind of relationship. John Ortberg, in the book, The Me I Want to Be, writes, you know, other people don't create your spirit, they reveal your spirit. And one of the barometers in knowing how you're doing with love is just knowing how you do, what your spirit is like when you're with the people who don't quite love you back the way that you expect or want to be loved. There, there are people who bring out the best in you. And they're the kind of people that are easy to love because they love you in some pretty extraordinary ways. But one of the things that Jesus teaches, both in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and elsewhere, is that love is not an investment. Love is a, a trait of character. To love as Jesus loved is to imitate Jesus in all of his relationships. The, the, the world gets that. I mean, it's easy to love somebody that's going to love you back. You know, I can be nice to this person because he's going to be nice back to me. Or I can lend to this person because one day I know that they'll lend back to me. But Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. That word credit, I want you to circle it on your outlines. It's the word charis, which is the Greek word for gift or grace. Basically, what Jesus is saying is that if you love somebody because they're easy to love and you're going to get the love back, where's the grace? Where's the demonstration of, of, of the grace? Jesus is actually asking, where's the grace when you love someone that's easy to love? The grace is seen in loving those people who are hostile to us. The, the people who, who, are, who are very overt in their hate. You know, there are people in your neighborhood, there are people at school, there are people at your workplace. I can remember the first time I realized that, uh, uh, that somebody hated me, uh, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, I didn't become obnoxious until high school. But I remember just uh, kind of overhearing that somebody hated me because I was red-headed. I actually thought that was my, one of my finer points. It was, it was, it was, I didn't understand that. But the reality of the fallen world, which is the counterculture to the culture that God created in Genesis 1 and 2, is that there is hate. And sometimes it's inexplicable. And there are people that are going to curse you, which means that they might wish that you had never been born or they might wish that you were dead, or they might wish that you would get run over by a car, but they're going to curse you, or they're going to be people that are going to mistreat you. They're going to take from you something that belongs to you or something that you deserve. They're going to say things about you that are not going to be true. How are you going to respond to that? And sometimes it even gets physical. Jesus says they may slap you on the right cheek. They slap and these are the people who are willing to let you suffer. 
And not only are they willing to allow you to suffer, but they're even going to bring it themselves on you. And you go, man, those are the kind of people that I need to stay away from. But Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. There is a grace that is seen in loving those people that just drain us. Disciples of Jesus are called to love those who take materially and or emotionally, but they never replenish. I mean, how do you love someone when chances are you're never going to be loved back or even treated fairly or even recognized for doing good to someone? I mean, I love the Beatles, but the Beatles got it all wrong. The love you give is not the love you receive. How do you love someone who won't love you back And not only won't love you back, but will even go out of their way to make you miserable and annoy you and even hurt you. I'd be the first one to tell you that that's not an easy thing to do. (laughs) It's a brother who knows. It's not. I think one of the most, most difficult things for a disciple of Jesus is learning how to relate to people in love to forgive them, to, to, to bless them, and to, and to love them, and, and, to, and, and to, to, to exemplify and demonstrate and manifest the presence of Jesus in your life when it comes to the difficulty of being in their presence. But all of this begins by seeing something, by seeing something clearly. It's to see our own lives in light of the grace that we have already received. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, For if, while we were God's, what? Enemies. We were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? The dynamic for loving our enemies does not begin with personal resolve. I'm just going to do better. It doesn't begin with personal resolve, but it begins with personal humility. It doesn't begin with a choice, even though a choice is involved, but it begins with an epiphany. And that epiphany is, I am the enemy, and I can't stop being an enemy to God unless He loves me. I cannot change any of that under my own power unless I'm changed because of the love of God that is shown to me and to you through Christ Jesus. And so John, who's hearing all of this on the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plains, towards the end of his life, there's this great story that, you know, he's old, there's not much he can say, he's weak, he's feeble, he has to be propped up, but he's still going to church, and he still has something to say to the people. And in his ending days, he would just say to the church, love one another. And it's John in 1 John chapter 4 that says, you know, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God did a painful thing, an incredibly sacrificial thing in his love in order for us to be reconciled to him. The chapter before that, chapter 3 verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
And so all of a sudden, the way that I begin to relate to people is based on how God has related to me. And the way that that has changed me in knowing that I'm a child of God, that I'm a child of the King of the universe, that there was nothing that He withheld for my adoption and your adoption to take place so that you would become a son or a daughter of God, that He loved you that much. That it just changes you. And then we begin to see what Jesus is doing in this particular sermon in Luke chapter 6. That Jesus, in saying these things about loving enemies, that Jesus is really foreshadowing and explaining the cross. Hey, what is an enemy? An enemy is someone who says, I want there to be a gulf between you and me. An enemy is someone who says that I, I want there to be a wall between you and me. An enemy is somebody who says, when it comes to emotional energy, none of the positive ones enter into this relationship, only the negative ones. Hate and, and disdain and indifference, all of those kinds of emotions exist between you and me, your enemy. An enemy is saying there is no way that, that you're, you're ever going to have a say or any kind of control in my life. My life and your life, hands off of mine. An enemy is someone who says, what you say and think are of little consequence to me. What happens to you is not my concern unless it's your demise, and then you have my attention. Then we see the cross of Jesus, knowing that that's what we said to him. Human beings, so intelligent, so incredibly insightful, and yet in our great logic and in our great thinking and in our schemes of understanding, we somehow decided that Jesus, the Son of God, the epitome of love, love himself needed to be killed. And then we see the cross, and we're not overrun, but we are overcome. Because when we consider the cross, Jesus loved those who hated him. The Bible says in the Gospel of John that he came into his own, but his own received him not. They hated him. And they wanted to pick up stones, and, 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 and another time wanted to throw him off of a cliff. They hated him and, and thought that he needed to die. And not only did they hate him, but they cursed him. In Matthew chapter 27, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking and wagging their heads at him. Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 that Jesus became cursed when we hung him on the cross. He was mistreated. Here is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And yet there's a Samaritan village that rejected him. He said to others that wanted to, to follow him that, you know, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There were lies that were said about him. There were those that were always, I mean, can you imagine what it's like to always be on point because there are people out there that are showing up on a daily basis to trap you and to indict you and to get rid of you. 
And the things that they said about him were horrendous. And they slapped him. One of the, the really emotional scenes for me in the, uh, uh, be, uh, the one of the beginning scenes in uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, is after they have dragged him to Caiaphas' house, they just sort of line up and those members of the Sanhedrin just walk up and they take turns just punching him in the face. They hated, they cursed him, they mistreated him, they slapped him, and then they stripped him naked. And all of this was to love us into the possibility of adoption. That we could be called the sons of the Most High. Sonship. That's not just about inheritance, but it's also realizing that we've received a love that we don't deserve. And that being true, it's a love that we can hardly imagine. But when we begin to get our minds around that love, just inch by inch by inch, we begin to change. And we begin to realize that if it was not for love, if it was not for love, God's grace, His desire to love us into His arms, we would remain His enemy for all of eternity but God is our Father. And, and, and that's not, you know, we don't love people in order to try to earn that. It's given to us as a grace. And when we love people as disciples of Jesus in the way that God has loved us as a grace, then we begin to show the grace in loving those, our enemies, who won't love us back. You know, our mission as a church, is to love God and to love people and to change the world. You know, a lot of times people ask, well, how in the world are we going to do that? Well, it's difficult. I mean, the world is the world, right? I mean, how are we going to change the world when it's hard for us to change at times? I mean, when's the last time you changed personally? I mean, it's, that's a difficult thing. Nobody says it's going to be easy. But I, I will say this. The, the way that the, the world begins to change is when people like you and me, people like us say that of all of the things that we have in this world, all the things that we know about, all of the things that impact us emotionally, the things that grip our heart, grip our soul, change our lives, the most important is that we're loved by God. And in being loved by God, we begin to change. And we're softened into patience. We're softened, and, 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 that, and that hardness is chipped away into gentleness and faithfulness and kindness. And it's not something we do because it's a list, a checklist of things, but it's who we become because we're the recipient of being overcome and immersed and overwhelmed by the greatness of God's love. And when that begins to happen, then we begin to change and affect all of the people around us who begin to wonder, who are these people who don't treat people according to the counterculture, but treat them according to the culture of the kingdom of God. What in the world is that? We're going to have some of our shepherds down here as we, we sing to God praise to his great name.
And this is an opportunity for us to thank him for that love that he has shown us in Christ Jesus through the cross that causes our sins to be forgiven forever and forever and forever. It's also an opportunity for those who have never experienced that love to experience it this morning as you come down and talk to these shepherds about the desire to become a disciple of Jesus. Let's stand and sing together. Faithful love flowing down 